The following conversation with Anna Helmer was funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Hello, this is the Organic BC Podcast and I'm Jordan Marr. In our last episode, we heard part one of my conversation with Anna Helmer of Helmer's Organic Farm. This episode features part two of that conversation. In this one, we go into more detail about the five-year rotation that the Helmers use to produce their potatoes, and how this rotation allows them to farm more or less without any off-farm soil inputs. We'll also spend some time talking about Anna's resistance to conducting soil tests, the no-till equipment they use for aspects of their planting, how the farm survived the heat dome, why biodynamic principles are important to the Helmers, and a couple of other things. That's about all I have to say for now. Here's part two of my conversation with Anna Helmer, and I will talk to you at the end. Let's move on then to to this this very interesting rotation on your farm. It's it seems mm. to me kind of kind of unique. Uh, you know, it, it, from if, if I'm doing my calculations right, you've got these are all mostly seven acre fields. Yeah. So so you've got roughly thirty five acres in this rotation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so seven fields or sorry, five fields at seven acres a piece approximately. And and you've, you're only doing a cash crop, mostly potatoes, one in every five years, correct? So mm-hmm. so, so we've already, I'll, I'll summarize, you know, you've got, you've got essentially following a potato year, you've got three years of this very special, refined, mixed cover crop, which we can get yeah. into in a sec, although people can reference the, uh, the field day video. Um, to, to learn about it. And then, and then a year where you're, you're trying to work in something to deal with, to scare off or deal with wireworms, buckwheat or, or mustard, and then your potato crop again. And, um, I guess, I guess maybe we'll just start with, is there any, is there any way you want to elaborate on that particularly? Um, like, do you think you've heard me summarize that a couple times now? Am I, am I kind of glazing over some important nuance? Well, no, I think you've summarized it really well. And, um, I wish it like it. I'm hesitating because when Dad and I sit and talk about it, and when Dad, as I say, is always thinking about it, we're always talking about doing different things, and we've tried tons of different. Like we've put mustard in at every year of the rotation, at every stage, over the years, and so I feel like it. It can be contradictory because also I like to summarize it the way that you've summarized it. Like it's just very straightforward to potatoes. Maybe we put fall rye in right after the potatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> maybe we go straight to the cover crop right after potatoes. If we've harvested early enough, we can get that cover crop set. Um, and then it's, yep, three years in the cover crop. And then we start fiddling for a year, with the, whatever we're going to do. And then the potatoes go in again. That's just great. That would be great if that's just how it went. <laughs> but it, we're always fiddling, like, through the whole time, it seems like we, we fiddle. Like, I, I, I'm sure there's been a year of, of rotation where it has gone just like that. Like, there must be by now. But it often seems like I, I get to the farm in the morning and there's dad off on field two, which is, like, not next year's potato field, not last year's potato field. Like field two, what's he doing on field two? Like, God, he's just got to be in his bonnet. He wants to try, you know, oh, no, whatever this radish thing is, he's on now. Um, this What's it called? Tillage deep, radish? Deep, that... Yes, yeah. tillage radish. I'm like, tillage radish? 
We have never done tillage routes till now, and now it's the latest, it's the greatest thing ever. <laughs> We're always going to do tillage routes every field, tillage routes. Tillage, like I have no, like what the heck? Where did tillage radish come from? <laughs> and I mean, it's it's as advertised, these enormous radishes in the ground. <laughs> but like, what's going to happen next? Like they're freezing right now, aren't they? Just turning into a smear of radish in the soil, like in the spring. I don't know. Anyway, so if people are confused about our rotation, I don't blame you one bit. It's confusing, but. In simple, straightforward way, you've summarized it perfectly, and that's what we're trying to do. So you finish a year of potato potatoes, and whether you get that rye crop in or not, I'm just wondering if you have any tips when you want to you want to establish that mixed forage cover crop the next season, right? Mm-hmm. Any tips for getting like just getting it jumping out of the soil and like really establishing and not having too much weeds coming up with it? Like any any thoughts about that? Insights, tips, whatever. Uh, I think it's a little inevitable that the weeds are going to come up. Um, I think it's part of the plan that the weeds will come up and then we're going to mow them. So they're not going to be able to set seed. Um, And that's a big reason why we mow it so many times. It is a little, um, you have to have nerves of steel in that first year because that field just looks atrocious, really. Like the last year's potato field, I, I don't know what all was coming up there. It was just, it was a, a garden of weed and potatoes and, you know, the potatoes dropped in the ground and you don't really want to go barreling over it with the mower when the clover is just setting up, like just getting going. And, you know, those tender little grass things are just going to collapse if you drive over it. So you kind of have to let it go, just get that cover crop going and you can see <clears throat> which is the cover crop and which is the weeds, usually, although that can also be a thing. And then you start mowing it. So you try to mow it before whatever it is is going to seed. And then you just keep doing it. So if you've missed it, that's okay. You're going to do it again in another couple of months or a couple of weeks, sorry. Um, you just keep going at it. Um, and it should it should take. But the first year, that first season is definitely... It's not pretty, like it won't look good. You don't want to run a farm tour on it that, that year. But don't lose your resolve. Don't see the weeds coming up yeah. and freak out and go and turn it over again. Yeah. You just got to be patient. Totally, yeah. yeah. Um, totally not. With a, with a mixture like you plant, when, mm-hmm. when are you, is this an as early as the soil can be worked situation or are you intentionally delaying planting till a certain soil temperature or conditions? Yeah, well, if we can, if we've gotten harvesting the potatoes by, you know, if they're out by August 15th or something like that, then we can plant the cover crop and it, it'll probably, it should go, it should catch before the winter and then it's, it's off and running the next year. That's an ideal situation. Um, in the less than ideal, if we haven't, so some of our, some of our field is in the cover crop while potatoes are still growing ah. next door. Yeah. Um, and not growing. They've probably had their tops cut, but they're they're there. Mm-hmm. We haven't finished harvesting. Um, anything after September first is probably not gonna. It's not worth it because that that mix is expensive. That mm-hmm. mix is, you know, hundred and fifty dollars a sack or something like that, and it's by far the most expensive thing input on the farm. 
that is the expensive input. Um, so your fall rides quite cheap, her husband. So you can throw that down just to just to hold things in place and and it's okay in the spring if that's gotten sort of out of hand with growth and you can't get to it till after the potatoes are planted in the next field you've got you can spend some time you know breaking that down and planting into that if you've got if you've got a planter that can do that um yeah and it the definitely the cover crop planted in the spring is a it, it's that dicey situation where you just have to gut it out and before you know it in the next year it'll be a lovely looking field um and you can bring the farm tour back by there again <laughs> Anna, i have not asked you about irrigation at all in this conversation mm. I, I, I neglected to in the potato production conversation um but let's start with your rotation in the video you produce for organic bc you you mentioned you don't really irrigate your your um cover crop fields is that like full stop you don't irrigate them yeah i'm trying to think if this year we might have uh can't remember now anyway if we did it was a rare event yeah we don't we don't we don't seem to do that and, um, and we, yeah, is this just reflective of of the conditions of general conditions of Pemberton that you generally get the precip, you know, to establish the cover crop, and then there's just enough through the season to. I mean, I realize with this mixture, you're just going to have elements of it that are going to do fine regardless. But um, yeah, is it is it you get the you get enough precipitation in the early growth stage that you just don't have to worry too much? Yeah, we. You do. Um, I think it's more a function of the irrigation generally being busy. We only have one reel, uh -huh. um, and it's on the potatoes usually. We do water them. Um, this year we watered twice through, I think. But it takes it takes like a week or something to run the reel through the whole crop. So the irrigation is busy most of the summer. Um, on the potatoes um, and then in the years where it's not busy we don't need to we don't need to be watering the cover crop once it's established obviously it's not a it's not a big deal I think we might have pulled it out and watered down the um, the tillage radish that dang tillage radish required <laughs> watering didn't it gosh yeah um, all right. Well, so. in, in one sense, I could, I could, I don't know. I want to frame your farm as this, like, as this organic dream or, or in more practical <laughs> terms, as, well, as a demonstration farm, because I, I, I can't mm. imagine this is, this is coming up for the first time, but, but there, there's a form yeah. of, I guess we could call it criticism that I'm sure you've heard before, which is like, so like when I say the dream, what I mean is like, there, there's definitely this concept of, can we have closed system agriculture? Can we manage our land mm. in a way where, for all intents and purposes, like we're not in any major way like having to add inputs every year. And in practical terms, it seems like you're doing that, which is amazing. But your overall output is is really limited in the sense that on on 35 acres of arable land, good land, you're 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 growing a cash crop on on a uh, a fifth of that. Um, mm -hmm. so, so I have, I'm sure, I'm sure that people have asked that a version of that question. I'm wondering 
how you feel about it or how you respond to that. I'm not meaning it as a criticism, Anna. Um, yeah, no, I, I see. I only yeah. raise it in the sense of like it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be a very practical for many farms. One reason I asked you, sorry to, to, to belabor my, my rambling, but one reason I asked you about ownership earlier in the conversation was because certainly anyone paying say a mortgage on a farm in mm. BC, given how expensive land is, would be hard pressed to, to make that work. So um, that, that doesn't mean your model doesn't have tremendous value. And it also doesn't mean you need to apologize for having the luxury to be able to do it. So there, there's mm -hmm. the end of my ramble. I just want to know how you respond, <laughs> how you respond to that. Um, well, I think that we're doing, we're able, you're absolutely right. We're able to do this and we've, so we're doing what we're able to do on the land. Um, yeah. And the, the only way we can increase sales, increase potato sales, like it'd be really hard for us to lease land and do this program, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, so given that we're not going to lease land and we're certainly not going to buy land um, with the current prices, the only way we can increase our revenue, our potato revenue, is to increase our yields, basically, and or and or increase our dollars per pound um, that we get for the yield. And so we have increased our yields every, every time we go back to a field, we get a better yield off that field than we did five years before, four years before. So we're every, every year we're sort of bolstered by the fact that it is actually working and our business is growing. Um, Another way it's growing, the, seed, the benefit of seed potatoes is that we can actually get more dollars per pound for seed potatoes because we're putting a lot more into it. All this lab work that we do, um, the years that it takes to develop a seed potato, talk about waste of land, um, you know, to get a, a commercial crop of seed potatoes for ones that we're developing, we've got three or four generations of potatoes growing that aren't going to be cash crops for like three or four years. Um, so we're really into this long game <laughs> revenue thing, but we are. And then the other thing that we can do is figure out ways to actually use the, the fields that are in off year, the off year potato fields. And that's where the carrots come in. Um, we don't put anything on the carrots either, but we do use, um, cow manure, composted cow manure for the beets and the parsnips and the garlic. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, and we've tried haying this forage crop as well. And we stopped with the haying because it was basically removing organic matter mm -hmm. from the field. And our whole point is to grow, is to develop, build organic matter. So the hay thing didn't work, even though I think there'd be a massive market for organic hay. It's, it doesn't benefit our, system at all it, it takes away from it but growing carrots beets and parsnips on a sort of another an acre out of the six or seven acre field seems to be okay um yeah it's a it's not a business that um it doesn't scale up very quickly for sure uh, but we have the luxury of not having to scale up very quickly and so we've taken advantage of that luxury, absolutely. 
Um, so can I ask, I'm going to jump back to practical and then I might jump back to philosophical for again, mm, but like yeah. why five years? It, Cause it's, it's like if I heard of a potato farmer doing a three year rotation with really serious cover cropping in between, I'd be impressed. And I would also mm -hmm. assume that they would go a long way to meeting soil replenishment. So why, why five? Just because it's, it's such a long rotation with only one major cash crop in between. Although I guess you've mentioned you do plant some of these other crops in that rotation as well. But anyway, mm -hmm. why five? Well, that's how long it takes us, five. And I think we'd actually prefer six. I think six would be better. Um, but when you, you know, from growing potatoes, when you take the potatoes out of the ground, that soil is nuked, like it is done. Mm -hmm. And... Potato, you can live on potatoes. They have everything you need to live on except for vitamin D or something. And they get all of that out of the soil. So they are leaving the soil just bereft of anything, <laughs> um, which it seems in our system is a good place to put carrot seed. But anyway, um, so it takes five years to get the field back in shape. That's what we've, if we could do it in three, we'd do it in three, but it's not ready after three. Okay. Um, it takes five. So, so fill me in then. Um, if we think of intensive potato farming in conventional systems, mm. how, what is their rotation? I mean, are there, do you know any con conventional potato farms that would be putting potatoes in the same spot every year or are there, are there always rotation built in to your knowledge? In Pemberton, there's always rotation built in. Um, they have a three year rotation standard. I think in the Fraser Valley, there's people growing um, warba year after year in the same fields. I mean, you can you can do it. You just need to put in all those nutrients. You can do it with a five-year cover crop rotation program, or you can do it with what you just buy it and put it in. But I doubt your yields are increasing if that's what you're doing. Right. So, so when you think about a two or three year rotation farm that's reliant heavily on inputs, and this question is just to get more at the heart of your own farming philosophy. What, how do you, yeah. what do you, what are your, the thoughts that go through your head or how do you react to that? This, uh, like a, a system that is like every two years or even in some cases every year, um, mm -hmm. and relying on heavy use of compost, heavy use of fertilizers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, all the mixed veg growers in Pemberton are in that doing that mm -hmm. and they're using lots of lots of the compost lots of all the inputs that are on the list like whatever they can get and i think quite a few of them are sort of starting to realize that they're having trouble like their organic matter isn't necessarily increasing um and i think they're trying to trying to make them more of a rotation and trying to work more with cover crops and that sort of thing and of course working with cover crops is a is a job it's it's a big job you have to manage you have to add it to your to your work day and it it doesn't generate revenue right away so it's not a very you know when you're in the thick of it in the summer you know going to mow the cover crop down is so low on the list <laughs> you've got 80 different vegetables that need to be harvested and refrigerated and sent out in the CSA box tomorrow, you're not going to want to go and mow the cover crop. So I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. I, I'm, um, I admire, I admire how hard they're working and how much food they're pumping out. It's really something. And I'm grateful that they've 
come and farm that are they're farming around us. They're inspiring. They're fun people. They've built the the local market. I'm sure I can go to Pemberton and make a good go of it there because there's I don't know 500 or something CSAs happening in Pemberton right now, and everybody knows how good the Pemberton food is. So. Mm-hmm. It's it's really something, but I I wouldn't I don't think I could do it. Like I just, you know, they've got six or seven staff, and they've got CSAs going out, and then they're going to market, and then they're doing this or doing that. Like it's amazing what they're doing. But I I think in the back of their minds they're like slightly plagued by this idea that they're going to need to get some rotations going, and it. I don't see how it's not going to impact their time and impact their revenue. I just don't see how that can be any other way. And I feel like we've come in from the, from, you know, like we hardly made any money in the nineties. I mean, I think, you know, the first sale was a sack of carrots or something like that. And then, so we've gradually built and had lots of off farm jobs and um, we've had, we've definitely gotten some inheritance money, um, but it's bought equipment. It hasn't, you know, we haven't really blown it on stuff. Um, and so we've gradually made more money. Whereas I think, you know, some of these mixed veg people, I mean, I'm sure they're making gobs of money. Their revenues must be huge, but they're going to have to like think about taking a hit somewhere in order to manage their soil. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, so they're coming from the other, they're going to have to go down while I'm going up. And um, I think I'd rather be in my position, although their position is way more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so glamorous, the glamorous, the glamorous lives of uh, oh, laughing for yeah. organics of plenty oh, of my God. farms. Yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> People can check out my long-form interview with the Laughing Crow Organics folks from last year's oh, do. podcast series. Those it's, guys. They gave a great yeah. um, mm-hmm. Okay, so I think we'll move on in fairly short order um, from from this rotation. But I, I did, the next quick topic was going to be equipment. And I guess I want to ask just at least one follow-up question from the video about your low-tillage, low-till cedar. Um the question I was going to ask is is getting how you get the timing right. So when you're going to seed into your mixed forage crop, so you've, you're, you're going to mow it one last time, and then you're going to seed, say, a mustard crop into it. Have you had mm-hmm. enough experience with that seeder yet to, to, to have learned ideal timing to allow the mustard to get up and over the forage crop? Definitely not. Definitely not. No, I don't know. Because uh, we might have to mow it and then do a really light top rotivate. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what we're going to have to do. So there will be some dirt and the clover will have to have begun the process of killing the clover, killing the cover crop um, before we plant the mustard in order to get it to grow. I suspect that's what we'll have to do. And um, And so is it, I know... You know, if I think about a resource like Rodale, they've goofed around a lot with low and no-till planting. Is it? Have you considered whether crimping might be a possibility, or 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 do you really think it, based on your experience, it's got to be that light soil disturbance before you before you come through to to put that mustard in? Yeah, I think that crimping would not leave. Um, I doubt it would kill it enough. Like I doubt. I just don't think it would break it. Like knock it back. 
long enough to allow the mustard to germinate and come up. And just on a really micro, you know, close-in look, like if you think about crimped soil lying on the ground, and then you come through with the disc thing and plant your little furrow of mustard seeds, <clears throat> that crimp stuff is going to close back in again, I think, and sort of settle in over top of that row of seeds. And so I think it would struggle to get through that. I don't think, I don't think it would be any different than our mowing. I think it'd be the same. And at least with our mowing, it's been chopped up into tiny little pieces. So there should be more space between the, the pieces of grass and clover and everything. But yeah, I'd, I have never crimped, so I don't know uh, exactly how that would look. But if I imagine it, and from what I've seen in the videos and talk to people, that's kind of what I see is a pretty thick um, thatch still for the mustard to penetrate. Anna, earlier in our conversation, when we were talking about potato production, you referenced that you're not really using inputs and you're not even taking soil tests. And you said that you find soil tests stressful, a statement I could relate to. And you said, you, the phrase you use is, we know we're low. And you refer, you, you, you mm -hmm. specified, you were talking about like, say, micronutrients or whatever. And, and, and that just creates anxiety. But ultimately, how do you, how do you reconcile that fact or possibility? Uh, like, I just had a follow-up question there. I'm just wondering, like, you know you're low, and yet you choose yeah. just to not take those tests and not, not get over, overall too concerned about it. So why not? Uh, well, I guess the big picture thing is that I don't. I think it affects the taste of the potatoes, um, and our niche, definitely a market, has been that they're the best tasting potatoes at market. So even though, <clears throat> and it's meant that we've been able to have good sales with nothing but potatoes in the stall, because people know that if they want tasty potatoes, you come to Helmers. So just to clarify, and, you mean you mean adding that copper product because you're deficient in copper or sulfur product because you're deficient in sulfur, you think that a trade-off is that you're, you're, it can actually lower, mm -hmm. lower the enjoy, like the taste. Yeah. I think that potatoes, when they have to work hard, when they have to, you know, do a little bit, I think they taste better. Mm -hmm. And if it's too easy, if they've had too much water, if they've had all the nutrients just right there at their fingertips, if it's all there, it's just a little too easy. And they're just going to taste like everyone else's potatoes who also put in such, such, and so-and-so. Like, this is, this is sort of the concept of terroir. Like, I feel like I can, I can pick out a Pemberton potato in a lineup. Um, and we're taking advantage of the fact that our soil up there has, it has most of what is required in potatoes. Um, it doesn't have much phosphorus. Um, but as apart from that, it has just about what you need to grow good potatoes in micronutrients and probably things we don't even know about. Um, everything that makes good soil for potatoes has happened up there. Um, the whole receding glaciers and exploding volcanoes and frequent flooding and everything that makes good soil has happened there. And right, so we're I just... I, I guess the proof is in the potato pudding, right? Like you, yeah. you have been growing. It's not like you're three years into growing potatoes and boasting that your potatoes are still great. You've been doing it a long, yeah. long, long time and, and your, your production. I mean, I think you said earlier, your yields are slowly getting better each year. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it, it, we don't have much incentive to change. We did one year. Um, let's see. This would be, say, 10, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. We had a terrible um, yield on the field that we were on this year, actually. It was, it was just atrocious. It was this field had only been through the program, like, for two rotations. It was a drought year. <clears throat> the cover crop didn't go well in a couple of years. We weren't irrigating yet. We didn't have an irrigation system. Um, so we didn't irrigate the potatoes. I don't know. Everything that happened went badly. And so we just had a really small yield and it felt like, Oh my God, what are we doing? Like, this is just ridiculous. We're totally risking going out of business on principle. And so we ordered a nice big pallet of whatever that stuff is that, Garden Pro something something ten 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 I don't know and it arrived and it was you know a whole pallet of fertilizer basically <laughs> of the organic food fertilizer and it was going to go on the potato field and Dad didn't do anything about it. like he didn't go and he didn't go and I didn't either like it just sat there in the barn and. And finally, we just decided, like, this isn't, we can't do it. Like, we just cannot bring ourselves. It was like charging 350 a pound. Like, I just, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not putting this stuff on. And so we called the company and they came and took it away. <laughs> but not before one of the bags broke. Because it was in these stupid plastic bags that, like, shattered almost on touch. It was really weird. And so, sure enough, one of them did shatter and a a bunch of it fell out and happened to fall into a yogurt container that I was holding under it. And so I had this little yogurt container of fertilizer and it was this really weird feeling. And so I, I sprinkled it around the tissue culture that I planted out. So this is a very early generation. It's, four years away from being actual food potato. Anna, I feel like you are explaining the origin story for a potato-based superhero, but please continue. <laughs> well, I did. These tissue cultures that normally I get like a pound, you know, out of 10 plants or something. It was like 100 pounds out of 10 plants. Like it was just insane yield, these plants that I'd sprinkled. And I didn't, I don't know how to apply it. I just sprinkled it around. Um, on this one. So it was just like mental yield. And so I know that fertilizer works, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And in terms of making a nice big potato and nice big yield, but I could tell they weren't tasty potatoes. Like I could just tell they were kind of shiny and ugh. anyway. So I know the fertilizer works. I have used it that one time on those tissue cultures and it was remarkable and they were superhero potatoes, but we haven't used it since. It's never been on the farm since. Uh, yeah. And what what happened for you during the 2021 heat dome? You can talk about uh, the potatoes and your and your fallow fields. Uh, well, you know what? The potatoes are fine. The potatoes are just fine. Like organic farming has been, you know, advertised as being able to handle this sort of thing. Like it's resilient or whatever. And sure enough, the fields are fine. There was still moisture between the under there and it we just carried on with a regular program and the cover crop fields were fine everything was fine it was us that were struggling like the people and the i think we're i think the organic stuff was fine like the whole 
it's all working out. But as a farmer, like I'm not sure if I'm a very good farmer at over 40 degrees. It's hard to function. I'm like, what did people do? We dug out a big hole in the drainage ditch and filled it with irrigation water and swam in that. And it was, I would never have dreamt of dipping a toe in water. Like we had every single aquatic bug in the aquatic bugs of BC where it was in that pond. Like water scorpions. Did you know we have water scorpions? Diving, giant diving, like beetles the size of a post-it note. I'm looking at a post-it note right now. That's how big these beetles were. And but I just thought that we none of us thought and gave it a second thought. In we went. Frogs, like (laughs) it was crazy. But we were fortunate to have um, irrigation water to pump in there, so the water would seep away sort of overnight back into the water table and we just pump it full again. So I think it was 48 degrees and I was, I was there in the middle of the pond and it was wonderful. (laughs) It was just great. Um, But what if you didn't have that? Like, what did you do? Did you have a pool? Uh, The pool I had was drying up. And so all I could do was focus on keeping the water scorpions alive. And I mean, that's, I spent all my time doing that. (laughs) Uh, I, I suffered. I suffered. Um, but, yeah. but enough said. I, it was brutal for all of us, but I'm glad to hear that, that cr- crop production-wise, it, it went okay. And I think it's, you're mm-hmm. probably right. It is largely a credit to, to a, at least partially, your, your long-term soil-building techniques. Anna, we have, we've been talking for a long time now, and we haven't even, I haven't even broached the fact that you're a biodynamic farmer. And I will probably disappoint some of your biodynamic colleagues because we won't be focusing on this a ton. But I did want to ask you why you're a biodynamic farmer and, um, you know, what are the key tenets that really appeal to you as a farmer? Well, I think it comes back to that point about our soil having most of what it needs to grow potatoes and we're taking advantage of that. And the next step from there is that biodynamics is all about accessing the sort of the power and the energy of the whole universe. Really, it harnesses all of that to focus on your on your growing. And we, I think, we need that on our farm um, because we're not adding anything else. We're going to have to use the power of the universe to get it done. And mom and dad came across biodynamics in the '90s. And it made a lot of sense to them. It was some, they met some very practical growers, which is unusual in biodynamics. There's a lot of theory. And it, it made a big impression on them. So they started using the preparations, which is a hallmark of biodynamic farming. These preparations that are prescribed by the guy that started biodynamics, Rudolf Steiner, as a way to sort of capture this energy and bring it into the soil and make it available to the plants. It's it's a difficult topic to um, be very clear about because I don't find it very clear. And it's taken me definitely my full 25 years on the farm to really feel like I have an idea of what's going on. But we do use the biodynamic preparations in our compost. We compost potatoes now and we get dirt at the end of it, like actual soil. Uh, I think people have issues with the word dirt, so I'll just use soil. Um and I know it's because we use these preparations and we're um, 
basically trying to digest potatoes the same way that a cow would. If you can imagine a cow eating a potato, it's quite a slobbery site. And the potatoes go in one end and they come out the other end in this beautiful manure. And that's what we're trying to do with the composting. And we have to do that with the biodynamic methods. It gets pretty out there and I, I can't pretend to be able to talk to talk about it. Like there's there's a biodynamic calendar that tells you when to plant, when you should be planting, when you should be cultivating, when you should be using the preparations. And it's all to do with the position of the moon and the sun and the stars. And I do not understand it. I get it that it works for people, but I can't plant seven acres of potatoes in the two days that it's appropriate to do that in May. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, and so I just, I don't get it. There are certain things about biodynamics I get and I do it and other things I don't get and I don't do it. Well, I'm glad to hear, I'm glad to hear that you as a biodynamic dynamic farmer have found it hard, like kind of, I'll use the word esoteric because I've, I've, I've glanced at it and found it esoteric. Um, So it's kind of reassuring to hear that, but, but real quick, what, what's the best way in for people? Is it that calendar or is there another text you would recommend? Because I would not recommend any of Steiner's like original texts because I find them (laughs) just like almost impenetrable yeah yeah it's a dense thicket i would start with the biodynamic preparation 500 and that i think that was his gateway as well um he knew that there would have to be something that a, a skeptical farmer would have to see some results from and i think this um 500 is a good start because it it's pretty simple it's made by just uh, packing a cow horn with um, manure, fresh cow manure, and then burying it over the winter. And the idea is that in the winter, that's when the energy in the earth is sealed. All the energy that you've brought in all summer is now sealed up there in the earth, and it's just churning away. That's the busiest time for the soil is in the winter, energetically. And so it's working on that that manure, in the con- and the horn is a very hard thing. So it's all banging around in there when you dig it up in the spring it's turned into this really beautiful sort of powdery sweetly smelling um substance and you don't have to make any of this you can buy this um you can get it from the biodynamic association of bc or you can send back east to get it um you don't have to make it and then you you mix that up in water and you throw it around um, and the droplet should be quite big. So if you're using a sprayer, you put irrigation um, fittings on there rather than sprayer fittings. Or you can just throw it, like dip a, a broom or your hand in and throw it around the ground. And you can do that as many times as you like in the season. I think it's good to do it spring and fall at least. And I'm pretty sure you get, you're going to see a difference. When I do it on the carrot crop, on the, on the field that's going to have carrots, I've got carrots that they're never hairy, they're never, they taste just, the taste is just next level. Um, They store well, um, they grow well. It doesn't seem to have any impact on the weeds, mind you. It would be nice if it did, it doesn't, it just punches them out just as hard as it punches the carrots out. Um, But I can definitely tell when I haven't done it versus when I have taken the time to do it. Again, it's one of those things, though, that it takes time 
an effort away from other things. So it's it's not expensive at all, but it does um, take time and effort. But it's it and it also is quite a long game. I think it it just gradually shows a difference. And you can I feel I don't I don't know how to say this in a sort of modest way, but um, I do feel like when people come onto our farm, they can they can tell that it's a different kind of a farm. There's something else. There's something else going on that's a little hard to put your finger on. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with um, not only my good looks and humor, just kidding, but um, biodynamics. Um, so it's a it's sort of a lifelong pursuit, and I'm always interested in learning more about it, which is why I write for the Organic BC magazine. Um, but I really don't know enough to be called an expert. I just know enough to be called a like I, I practice it, and I believe it works. I'm a believer, and I have you know my evidence. Anna, in a nutshell, yeah. very briefly, mm-hmm. if you can, what's your favorite and your least favorite part of farming? Um, okay, well, favorite is growing something that looks good, tastes good, and I'm going to get good money for it. Love it. Least favorite uh, is the heat dome thing. And also, oh, the plastic bag, plastic bag ban issue is my least favorite thing right now. Because selling potatoes at markets and paper bags in the rain is just—it's not on. It's not going to happen. You need plastic. So I just find it really irritatingly short-sighted, <clears throat> and jerky. Anna, we're going to end on okay. uh, announcing to everyone something I'm pretty sure is true, which is <laughs> that you are slated to be the master of ceremonies at the 2023 or uh, BC Organic Conference, which will be. For the first time in November, not February of 2023, mm-hmm. can you confirm? I think I can confirm. Um, I was slated to be for the spring one that got cancelled, um, and uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a that's a go. Well, and yeah, I, this is big news. Um, <laughs> Did I you have, know? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I. I am on the committee. I'm on the organizing committee for the conference. And so I have access okay. to the evaluations that people fill out. I have, I've compiled a list of um, words and phrases that people use. They were asked in their evaluations last time around to describe uh, the, the last MC. Um, and so I just compiled some here for listeners and for you uh, to get you, to get everyone excited for you being MC. So here are some words and phrases for, that, were used to describe the last MC. Blowhard, loudmouth, windbag, empty-headed, wetback, philistine, musky, fusty, callow, disingenuous, oversensitive, overdressed, overalls were ugly, underprepared, bad jokes, humorless, gutless, pedantic, Boorish, garish, peevish, sickly. Someone wrote just bad farmer. Uh, oh. Lumpy, hollow, dense. And one person took a bit more time and wrote, please get rid of this MC. Honestly, I think a bag of potatoes could do a better job. 
Hence me. Yeah, well, that's that's then we we looked into getting a bag of potatoes uh, organic, of course, and then we realized for what you charge for your potatoes would be cheaper to get you. So this is how I, I've just described how we got to you, Anna, and um, okay. I think everyone is going to be very excited for to, for, a new a face, of a, for a new face yeah. for a new face at the at the lectern. Uh, we'll see how they handle a middle-aged lady. <laughs> see what I can do. <laughs> uh, we're all very excited for that, so I hope that comes to fruition, Anna. And overall, Anna Helmer, for um, for sitting down with me to share your knowledge and your insights and all the rest, I can't thank you enough. Thanks so much for giving this time to the Organic BC Podcast. Oh, well, thanks for doing it. And great questions, and it really you know, has made me think and organize myself and really worry about being the MC for the NIPC <laughs> conference, but to work on my outfit. Well, you've got obviously. lots of, lots of time to prepare lots and, of time. and extremely yeah. low bar to clear if the, uh, if the comments on evaluation forms are any indicator. Well, uh, I'll, I'll probably bribe people a little more than you did. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks. Thanks again, Anna. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you very much. All right, thus concludes part two of my conversation with Anna Helmer. Everything that preceded the words that I'm saying right now was funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Weird that I'm saying it that way, everything that preceded these words. Anyway, thanks to Matt Eckel for providing the theme music you're hearing right now, as well as the segment transitions. Theoretically, this episode is over now. Whoa, those words were ambiguous too. Weird. Weird. I try to include a portion of potatoes with every meal I consume, and you should too. Potatoes make excellent presents for all special occasions. Here is a list of my favorite foods. Potatoes and Actually, that's it. It's just potatoes. Ha 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 ha. Do you need a ride to the curling club this week? I would give you one, but unfortunately my car is filled to the brim with premium Pemberton potatoes. Ha 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 ha. Last month my mother suggested there might be such a thing as too many potatoes. We have not spoken since then. I have moved to Pemberton to be closer to the potatoes. I've been sleeping in an irrigation ditch because my car is filled with potatoes. There are many water scorpions in the ditch but I consider it a price worth paying to be closer to Pemberton potatoes. I am starting to see the wisdom in my mother's words. Some of the potatoes in my car are rotting. Many others are turning green. I have no means to cook my potatoes. 
I tried using a potato as bait to catch a fish, but the irrigation ditch contains only water scorpions. Water scorpions do not like potatoes. My mother once told me I'm not very good at thinking things through. We didn't speak for two months after she said that. Would you like some potatoes? I will sell you a bag at a very good price.